This is WCNY's The Capitol Press Room, and we're examining the state of safeguards in place to ensure that marijuana products sold as part of New York's adult-use retail market are safe for consumption. To help us navigate that landscape, we're joined by John Kagia, Director of Policy for the State Office of Cannabis Management. Welcome to the show, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So before marijuana ends up on one of the shelves of the few legal retailers in New York, whether as loose flour or maybe some sort of processed product, what sort of screening has it gone through? Right. So the state of New York has a very robust testing and product quality control process for legal cannabis before it ends up in consumers' hands. Um, And there's a couple of ways, a couple of points along the production process in which the product is tested. So after a grower has harvested their flour, if they intend to sell it as loose flour, so whether that's in pure smokable flour or in pre-rolled joints, so cannabis-like cigarettes, it will be tested at that point to ensure that it meets a broad requirement of standards. And broadly, there's about 10 major categories of things that we test for in the cannabis. If that flour is going to be processed, and by processed we mean the oil gets extracted and it gets used to manufacture what we call value-added products, products like edibles, the gummies, the chocolates, beverages, vape cartridges, then once that oil has been extracted and those products have been manufactured, the products then get sent for testing in their final packaging so that the labs are reviewing the products before they get sold to consumers in their final packaging before they get sold. It's worth noting that a broad range of elements in the cannabis product that get tested First and foremost, we test for potency. So we look at the cannabinoid profile. So these are the compounds that naturally occur in cannabis, uh, the most famous of which are THC and CBD. THC is a compound that gets you high so that consumers can know how potent the, the product is. But we also test for other things like filth and foreign materials, for heavy metals like lead and nickel. We test for microbial content, uh, yeasts and molds, and other contaminants like salmonella and aspergillus. We test for how much moisture there is because we we know that uh, moisture content can be a trigger for mold and mildew. We also test for, if it's a processed product, things like residual solvents. So if you're using something like ethanol or butane to extract the oil from the biomass, we don't want that left in the product before the product is manufactured. So we test to ensure that in these finished products that you don't have these residual solvents in these products before they end up on store shelves and in consumers' hands. Well, for all those different items that are being tested for, Do you have state regulations governing the amount of acceptable levels of these items, or are some of the tests just done to detect whether they're there at all, and they're not necessarily disqualifying to have certain items that are detected? Great question. So for each of these elements, and there's a whole list of dimensions that we test for, or elements that we test for within those broad 10 categories, some of them are tested just on a reporting basis. So for example, on the THC or CBD content, the amount of cannabinoids in the product, those are tested for the consumer's information so that we know how potent the product is. There are others which we test for on a pass-fail basis. So if we find E. coli uh, in the product, 
that's an automatic failure because we can't countenance having E. coli or aspergillus in the product. There are some elements which we test for the consumer's information, such as total yeast and mold, so that the consumer can make an informed decision about what thresholds at which they might be comfortable consuming at. Well, let's talk about the yeast and mold testing specifically. Has the state always taken the approach that it's up to the consumers to determine what they're comfortable with? Or was there ever a point where there were standards of what was uh, acceptable in terms of yeast and mold? Yeah, so so we have different standards between the medical market and the adult use market for um, what we call the microbial content in, in our cannabis. And... There's a couple of things that are important to note. On the medical side, we felt it really important that we have more stringent standards because of the expectation that based on the conditions our patients are suffering from, we tend to have immunocompromised consumers of our medical cannabis. And so really important that the cannabis being sold through our medical program is sold and tested at a higher threshold. However, on total yeast and mold for our adult use product, particularly because our adult use product is grown outdoors. We looked at the landscape for microbial content, total yeast and mold testing in other states which have outdoor cultivation, and that's a critical element here. There are nearly a dozen other states around the country which have well-established adult use programs that don't even test for total yeast and mold, don't test for microbial content. And because this product is being grown outdoors, you'll naturally have a lot more microbial activity because it's growing in the soil, it's exposed to outdoor conditions. Um, We made the decision to go further than most other jurisdictions in the country in our total yeast and mold by testing for it and making that information available to consumers rather than just not testing for it at all and thereby limiting the ability for the consumer to make the decision. So we have a distinction between our medical cannabis, all of which is grown indoors in highly controlled environments. And so higher standards there because of trying to ensure the health of the immunocompromised consumers and because of the environment in which it's being grown. But for our outdoor cannabis, which is being grown outdoors, we felt it really important that We go further than most of the other adult use jurisdictions in the country that have outdoor cannabis cultivation by at least testing for it and providing that information to the consumer. Well, under the current dynamic then, when it comes to the adult use market, is the sky essentially the limit when it comes to the amount of acceptable yeast and mold based on the dynamic you're talking about? It isn't. So, you know, as as a young market, we are monitoring these data in real time as they're coming in. And, you know, we have a very experienced set of scientists and science experts, uh, many of whom who came from the state's Department of Health, who are deeply involved in building the state's medical program, who monitor this testing data as it comes in and both engage the producers as we see uh, levels that might be concerning, but are also accumulating this data to inform our decision-making on what Uh, thresholds to set. Now, we have identified several biological contaminants that we do not compromise, aspergillus, E. coli, and salmonella. 
um, those are tested on a pass fail basis because there's clear demonstration of the public um, health risk of the of the potential negative health effects. And so we drew a hard line on those as you, you cannot sell cannabis that the test for these uh, positive for um, uh, those contaminants. Uh, but for general microbial activity, particularly if you're growing cannabis in living soil, you would see elevated levels of, of microbial activity. And that's not to suggest that that microbial activity is uh, dangerous or harmful. It just means that those are going to be elevated because this is uh, these these compounds are being or these plants are being grown outdoors in in kind of the very natural environment in which cannabis thrives. So we have asserted as a state, we have a robust protocol in place to review these data as they're coming in. Um, and given that we are still in the very early stages of the implementation of this market, we want to collect these data, uh, review it, follow the science as we define what our thresholds are. But in the instances where we find uh, truly alarming uh, uh, levels or levels that uh, fall outside um, uh, what we would expect or fall outside the, the uh, ranges that we would uh, uh, typically see, uh, certainly working with our licensees to make assessments on what to do with that product. And after a quick break, we'll have more on marijuana health and safety in the adult use market with John Kagia, Director of Policy for the State Office of Cannabis Management. Support for Capital Press Room provided by the William G. Pomeroy Foundation. Communities across the Empire State have stories to tell. A roadside marker funded by the William G. Pomeroy Foundation can help your town or city educate the public, encourage pride of place, and promote local tourism. More about the Pomeroy Foundation's New York State Historic Marker Grant Program for 501c3 organizations, nonprofit academic institutions, and local state and federal government entities at wgpfoundation.org. Well, for listeners just joining us, we're continuing our conversation about health and safety regulations in the adult use retail marijuana market space. And our guest is John Kagia, Director of Policy for the State Office of Cannabis Management. So if you do find certain levels that you're uncomfortable with, you will work with the processors, work with the growers to address those concerns, but you don't have, at this point, a hard and fast threshold for when to actually pull a product uh, based on those tests? Not on the general microbial levels. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we do for the ones which we know are problematic, the E. coli, salmonella, and aspergillus. So those are those are immovable objects. Because we don't have an upper limit or, or we haven't set a threshold yet, we're reviewing it as the data is coming in. And uh, actually, we have been building a database of this information uh, in order to ensure that um, we are making a data-driven uh, uh, policy recommendations, um, given that our cannabis is going to be grown outdoors. You know, cannabis is a plant, it thrives in outdoor environments, and we want to ensure that we are balancing the environmental implications of uh, production in what is going to be a very high production state, allowing this plant to thrive outdoors as, as, as most plants do, uh, but also ensuring that the public health and public safety continues to re remain principal to all of the work that we're doing. Well, you highlighted the fact that the public has access to this information, and I have to admit that I am ignorant of where to go for that information, and I cover marijuana issues 
pretty regularly. So I have to imagine that I'm slightly more informed than, say, the general public. So where do people go for this? And is there any reason to expect that New Yorkers are proactively searching out this information? We would certainly hope so. And not just for this issue, but for all of the contents of the cannabis uh, around the cannabinoids, the uh, terpene profiles. These information are really critical to helping consumers make better informed decisions about what they're consuming and helping them better understand how the makeup of the products influences the experiences that they're having. So where can they go for this information? Every product uh, will have either a link or a QR code, which the consumer can scan uh, that will take them to what we call certificate of analysis. The certificate of analysis is what comes from uh, the state laboratory, a state certified laboratory indicating the tested thresholds for all of the uh, state requirements for regulated cannabis. And so one can get the certificates of analysis both uh, directly off of the packaging. You can you can find it uh, via a link or a QR code um, that's on the package on every cannabis package sold in the state of New York or on the manufacturer's websites. And so um, we strongly encourage New Yorkers to go and look at the information here. These COAs are, I think, a fascinating profile of cannabis and provide a level of insight into what's in the product that is not available for consumers who are purchasing from the unregulated market. This is one of the key differences between the legal regulated product and the product in the unlicensed and illicit market is that we are being fully transparent and being transparent than most other adult use markets in what we're testing for and making sure consumers have ready access to that information. So please scan those QR codes, go to those links, uh, and spend some time reviewing the profile of the product that you're purchasing from the legal market. Looking at some of the other elements that uh, are being tested as part of this process, you mentioned heavy metals and the Syracuse Post Standards Cannabis Insider reported uh, that state certified labs have not necessarily been following the rules for reporting uh, heavy metals and other contaminants with a spokesperson for the Office of Cannabis Management saying that they are aware of certain non-compliant test results, but have stressed that there are uh, no serious or systemic problems that the public should be concerned about. Why aren't those violations a concern for the public? I think the framing of that piece was unfortunate because it one of the things it failed to cover is some of the work being done behind the scenes to ensure that um, all of our labs are operating in compliance. We we have a, a very dedicated and hardworking team here that works with our labs to ensure that um, all of our standards are being implemented both in spirit and to the letter of our regulations. I kind of challenged the assertion that lab testing standards are not being adhered to and that the regulators are, are not kind of paying very close attention to this. Uh, we certainly are, and we continue to, to work very closely with our labs to ensure that every single one of our requirements, whether it's on heavy metals, the micro, uh, microbiology, um, on pesticides, on the residu residual solvents, that each and every one of our standards is being met. Well, there's a reference to the spokesperson saying they are aware, though, of non-compliant test results. So is the spokesperson just being misquoted or are the non-compliant test results not necessarily a big deal? 
No, what I'm saying is that we are addressing the non-compliant test results. It's not gotcha. that they're, uh, yeah, that, that we, we absolutely have a, a, a kind of deficiency and remediation process in place to ensure that labs who are non-compliant or labs who, who may not be providing all of the information that is required on their COAs are addressing that. I think that was a piece that was failed to be captured, mm-hmm. that we are actually working to address these issues because ensuring that the public can have confidence in this product is, is absolutely critical. Well, what happens in the interim, though, while you're resolving those issues? Are those labs still capable of reviewing products that eventually get sold? So we have a process by which every lab um, has to receive certification from the state for each individual type of test that it does. So um, in our review process, you know, it's not that a lab will get certified to test for product and can run all of the tests for all of these broad 10 dimensions from cannabinoids to, to water activity. Each lab has to have a certified and reviewed process for testing for cannabinoids, for filth and for materials, for pesticides, for residuals, et cetera. And um, if there's a, a deficiency that is encountered in the testing for one of those elements, then we go and address the lab for that issue. It may not impede their ability to test for the other things which they remain fully compliant and four. Uh, but there is a, fr- a framework and a process by which we are reviewing these standards uh, for each individual element to ensure that uh, they're being adhered to. This isn't a kind of broad-based um, approval process. Each lab has to meet very specific standards for each and every contaminant or element of the cannabis product that they're testing for. And what about testing for potency? Are you finding that all the products that are being reviewed and then getting onto shelves are staying within the limits for THC? There's two parts to that. For cannabis flower, we don't have potency limits. Generally, much of the product that we're seeing appearing on on the market thus far is between, say, 12% THC and uh, roughly 30% THC. Where we do have limits on potency is on the value-added products, where you have a maximum threshold of 10 milligrams of THC per serving size. So if you have a cannabis gummy, that individual gummy cannot have more than 10 milligrams of THC uh, in its serving. And then you have a maximum dosage per package. So you can have no more than 100 milligrams of THC in a cannabis product package. So if it's 10 milligrams per gummy, you couldn't have any more than 10 gummies in that package. We do have what we call acceptable variance limits. And this is common across virtually all consumer products. The federal government has broad standards, not for cannabis specifically, but for consumer products in general, because consumer product manufacturing isn't always decimal precise. We have allowances for variance of a couple of percentage points on in either direction that still qualify as allowable within our testing protocols. So the variance levels 
in the market are pretty standard across all regulated ca um, cannabis markets because you, you, you do want to allow some level of tolerances in the manufacturing processes. Um, but we have largely found that the vast majority of our product does fall well within uh, those variance thresholds and where we have found issues. Again, we have worked with both the manufacturers of the products and the labs uh, to ensure that um, this is being done in, in a way that is compliant with state regulations. One other thing then I'm thinking about is the product that's been grown during the 2022 harvest and has yet to say, find a marketplace. Are you concerned at all about either safety or potency issues from the way those products are either stored or just the time that's passed from when those were grown in harvest to when they're actually being sold? We aren't. Look, we, we know that we have not sold as much product as we would have hoped uh, based on the expansion of our retail uh, access. But we understand that uh, many growers were diligent in the way that they prepared, preserved their product. For those who haven't tested it yet, we, we will be testing to ensure that any additional product that is being brought onto the market at this stage is compliant. And to be clear, you know, th there are several ways in which you can extend the longevity uh, of the product and ensure that it is not negatively impacted by the duration uh, that it has remained in storage post-harvest. There are ways to remediate the product uh, as a way to neutralize microbial activity in the product, processing or manufacturing, running the product through uh, extraction processes, so taking it from raw flour and extracting it to oil um, can further extend its shelf life because oil tends to be far more shelf-stable than the loose flower. So we are certainly monitoring the products that we currently have on the market to ensure that only product that meets the state's regulations uh, for compliant product is being sold to consumers. So finally, you talked about collecting data and how this is a, a work in progress as we lift off this, this nascent uh, adult use market. Are there any regulations or areas of regulations that you anticipate the Office of Cannabis Management will be uh, addressing when it comes to health and safety in the near future? One of the things that we are profoundly excited by uh, at the Office of Cannabis Management is really becoming a leading center of excellence around cannabis science. There's still so much about cannabis that remains to be explored, and there's a phenomenal amount of innovation that's happening in this space. And we want to stay ahead of that. Uh, just recently, we announced the launch of cannabis research licenses, and we hope that uh, researchers around the world will come and work in the state of New York to advance the science around cannabis. Uh, we also know that we are doing something novel here by having so much outdoor-grown cannabis in the state of New York uh, across. Uh, a state that has a lot of different climatic conditions. And that's going to be an opportunity for us to continue to build deep science on how to optimize the performance of outdoor cultivation using genetics that can do particularly well in the Northeast. The science that we see proceeding over the next few years will not just be around testing standards and, and product quality, but it is going to span the entire spread of the opportunities around the, the cannabis ecosystem from um, how 
to optimize the performance of the plant in climates like we have here in New York, how to advance the kind of energy efficiency around cannabis cultivation in controlled environments, how to optimize the yields and processing of cannabis so that there's very little waste as you're going from the raw flour into manufactured products, and all the way through to how to um, align different types of cannabis formulations to improve human health and wellness. We think there's a tremendous amount of science to be done there and carefully cater to public health and safety. Well, we've been speaking with John Kagia. He is the Director of Policy for the State Office of Cannabis Management. John, thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Dave. Thank you so much. business agency or service interested in delivering your message to more than two dozen radio stations statewide carrying Capital Press Room? If so, visit capitalpressroom.org to contact our underwriting team.